going to do an introduction. We've been off for a week. Rick did two weeks on chapter one. I am actually going to take three steps back into chapter one to get a running start at the churches. Um, and I'm going to do so not because uh, of any uh, inadequacy in what was already taught, but there are things that are pertinent to the understanding of the churches that are in chapter one that we have to key on and focus on in order for us to go forward. Is everybody following me so far? So far, I haven't jumped off into anything. So you're going to learn some Jewish tabernacle stuff today. You're going to learn interesting things about uh, Jubilee. You're going to learn various things uh, that have to do with where we're at going forward and how this is going to look um, throughout. And the reason that I'm going to do that, there was an interesting statement made in one of the books that I was reading that basically said, why do we enter into the hallway of apocalypse through the vestibule of the churches? And is basically the way he said it. And I thought, well, that's an interesting question. Why would we, why would John, oh, let me say this first. That particular question has caused a lot of people to believe that that Revelation is a composite of many of John's writings over a series of years. And a lot of theologians have suggested that it is an eclectic, uh, is it eclectic the right word? It's an eclectic book. It's just a, a gathering or a collection of some of the things that Paul wrote. That's why you seem to have this dis disjointedness that goes through it. And the reason that it's disjointed and that we see it as disjointed is because we apply a dispensationalist concept to it, and it makes it very weird. So let me ask you this question. Why would John, better yet, why would the Holy Spirit impart from Christ to John the series of Revelation where Christ is introduced and then you have a picture of him among the lampstands prior to what we consider apocalyptic literature. Why would that be? Anybody have a thought? Because I know when I was growing up, one of the things that I used to do is skip the first three chapters of Revelation so I could get to the fun stuff. Right? Why would, why would the Holy Spirit see fit to prelude the visions of Revelation with a vision of Christ among the churches. Why? Has anybody even thought of that? Okay, it's okay. That's, that's the purpose of the class. Um, I've often thought that, and it's because I've read Revelation countless times, and I've always thought, and, and I got to a point where I was just hopping over this particular point. And one of the things that we have to see, and I'll try to explain this is, uh, as we go on, but this is one of the reasons why I'm going to take a couple of steps back and get a running start at this, is because if we don't see Revelation in a particular viewpoint, the idea of the apocalypse being prefaced by seven, what's called seven epistles, to the churches, we, it, it doesn't make any sense. It seems very disjointed and, and separated. So I'm going to do an introduction, and then we're going to talk about 
the lampstand as it used to be, the way that the temple was laid out, and the vision that John saw. And all of these are important because you have to understand that John wrote to a Jewish audience who was very, very, very familiar with the Old Testament. And I was talking to my wife the other day about this, and, and we were saying, well, I was saying to her that one of the reasons I think that the church does not get revelation very well is because we have this viewpoint that there are two separate Bibles, basically. There's an Old Testament and a New Testament. And the Old Testament is history that we like to read that's good for children's stories. And the New Testament's where all the good stuff is, where all the salvation is. Right? And you've heard the statement, I'm a New Testament Christian. Well, when we do that, we, we completely undermine the panorama of salvation. And John, in his revelation, demonstrates how important the Old Testament is to our salvation. Because, as G.K. Beale says, there are 550 references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation, which is more than, any, than the rest of the New Testament combined. So if you don't know the Old Testament very well, Revelation will be a very cryptic book to you. Okay? So... Let's start out um, with the letters to the seven churches. This is an introduction and an integration. And my purpose here is to integrate the seven churches and the letters to the seven churches into the rest of Revelation so that you understand that there is a continuity there and that, that this is basically, John's book is basically an epistle. And I think it will help us all read Revelation better if we understand it as an epistle. And I'll explain that in a little bit. All right. The prophetic visions of Revelation often obscure the fact, as I've been saying, that it was a letter written to churches or the church and is therefore, first of all, pastoral in nature. Anybody know what pastoral is? Right. Okay. Overseeing, shepherding, encouraging, exhorting. Okay, so this is one of the things that we typically don't apply to to the to the book of Revelation. We typically don't apply the word pastoral to it, but it is in fact pastoral because the goal of Revelation is to bring encouragement to all believers throughout redemptive history. And it's been a shame that we haven't read Revelation in that capacity because it is very encouraging. And I will tell you this. I have spent probably in the last, I don't know, two months, I've read Revelation probably through 12 times, and I have, I'm still stuck in sorting through chapter one in, in my studies, and I am absolutely staggered by God is opening up vistas in my mind that I've never, ever explored before because of what I've been reading. So this book is, there's a book out right now called Revelation, the Capstone of the Canon, and it's, I would suggest that you read it. it. It shows how basically Revelation is the summation of the entire scripture. It's absolutely phenomenal when you do this and when you start to get into it. But anyway, the goal of Revelation is to bring encouragement to all believers throughout redemptive history that God is working out his purposes in the midst of tragedy Suffering, persecution, and apparent satanic domination. 
Now, this, this all refers to this word here. And this word in, the, in Revelation 1.20 is applied to what comes after it, the two, the two chapters, mystery. The two chapters after chapter 1, chapter 1 closes with the words, this is the mystery of the seven churches and the seven stars. And then if we don't understand what John is saying when he, said, when he speaks to, of mystery, we don't understand what the picture is that John sees. Now, I will tell you this. How many of you, under, what is mystery? Anybody know what mystery is? Something that's hidden, okay? Um, yes, that is one of the, uh, the applications. The other one is, uh, in Scripture, something that's unexpected, okay? And something that is hitherto unknown because of its unexpected nature, Okay? So what John is saying is, is that there is a mystery that, is, that concerns the picture that he saw of Christ among the lampstands. And we're going to get to that today. Okay, It's the same mystery of Christ ruling from the cross because of the cross. That's a mystery. It's the very same thing. So we'll get to that in a minute. Um, we are encouraged, therefore, to persevere uh, in the assurance that Christ's victory and our reward is certain. How many of you have thought of that this week? My victory and my reward is certain. When you run into a problem. So, yeah, that's, that's the encouragement of Revelation. With regard to this, there is a repeated vision given into the heavenly sphere. So, throughout Revelation, what we see is we see, and we're talking about this pastoral epistle type thing, that there's this repeated Referral back into the very throne room of heaven where we see the celebration and the worship of God's people. And this is done to give us a, a, a heaven's perspective continually throughout the book. Because there's the war that's waging on the earth. Satan and his minions are doing everything they can to snuff out the... Uh, uh, the words of Christ and the, the testimony of the church, everything they can. And throughout Revelation, John, uh, the Spirit takes John back into the heavenlies to show them that Christ is on the throne. He is ruling from there. There is great celebration in heaven. And so that's, that's an encouragement that goes back to the pastoral aspect. Um, this um, according to Beale, the reason for addressing the churches then through their representative angels, is to remind them that they have already begun to participate in heavenly places. What does Ephesians 2 say? We have been seated with Christ in heavenly places. That is a current tense statement. And according to several of the commentators, the stars in, the uh, the stars in Jesus' hand, which do represent the angels of the churches, have a an eternal significance that though the lampstands are earthly, there is a heavenly aspect to the churches. And John keeps showing us the heavenly aspect of the churches throughout the visions where the church is collectively worshiping before the throne. Does that make sense? Did I run off and leave anybody? We'll get, to, we'll get I'll try to clarify some of that in a, in a little bit. This perspective, when you join 
the visions to the churches makes the church aware that her victory over compromise and persecution ultimately comes from the throne of God where Christ exerts his reign over the powers of the earth through the Holy Spirit. Now, the lamps of the Spirit give power to the ecclesiast- the, the lampstands to shine their light on Christ or to bear witness to him by revealing him throughout the earth. Now, this is the old menorah. This is the old lampstand in, in in the Old Testament, all right? Now, when you see a lampstand, what do you think? Do you, do you also include the picture of, like, the flames up here, too? Right? See? Those are, those are flames. I'm drawing flames on a menorah, okay? So, right? So we think of a lampstand as, by definition, having a lamp, right? In Scripture, those are two separate things. The church is the lamp, the Holy Spirit is the lamp. The, the church is the lampstand, the Holy Spirit is the lamp. Yeah. So that's Zechariah too, uh, Zechariah. So the church is illuminated by the power of the Holy Spirit to reflect Jesus. And this is a picture of what goes on in the tabernacle. Here is in, in the holy place, which is right here, right holy. I can't explain this to those of you that are listening at home because I drew a picture of the tabernacle. This is the Holy of Holies right here. And in the Holy of Holies, there was the altar of incense, there was the lampstand, and then there was the showbread, table of the presence. Okay, so what does the presence represent? The bread on the, on the, on the table. The body of Christ. So it represents Christ. What was the purpose of the, of the lampstand? Scripture. It's in, the purpose of the lampstand was to continually night and day shine light on the bread of presence. So that's a picture of the church. Church's responsibility to be equipped by the Holy Spirit to illuminate Christ to the world. That makes sense? So, in the Old Testament, this was to always be kept going. It was to face, the, 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 the lampstand was to face the bread of presence and illuminate continually Christ Jesus. Okay, so this is very important to what John saw. Christ among the lampstands that are illuminated by the lamps of the Holy Spirit. How many lampstands are there? How many lamps of the Spirit are before the throne room of God? Seven. Each one of the lampstands is illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this is very key. Because by this, Christ is revealed. The church, being filled with the Spirit, shows Jesus Christ to the world. That is her testimony. That is her witness. That's the picture that John saw. Okay? Any questions on that? Going, going, gone. All right. 
All right. Now then. We could, we could almost stop right there. It is incredible, isn't it? So here's some other things for you. And this is completely off the topic, but this is fun to think about. Throughout Scripture, or in Revelation, there's a statement that the outer court is turned over to the nations and they trample the outer court. You ever heard that statement? There's that in Revelation. While inside, in here, the church is, this is given over to true Israel, the holy place, but the outside, the outer court, is trampled by the Gentiles. Who knows what the outer court is? Who knows what two items are in the outer court? This is the altar of sacrifice and the, and they are both what? Made out of what? Bronze. Why? Because bronze has to do with judgment. So this is the sacrifice. This is the water. What does this represent? Washed with pure water. So the supplicant, those who are come, come again, come through Christ Jesus' sacrifice and are washed with pure water to enter into the holy place. And when the temple curtain was torn, this is the uh, Ark of the Covenant. This temp- curtain was torn. Now God's people directly have access into it. Let us come boldly into the throne room. That's what this is a picture of. So if this is where Christ's work out here in the outer court is done for the salvation of men and the Gentiles trample this, what does that mean? If the Gentiles are trampling the outer court, it means that they are stamping on the atoning sacrifice of Christ Jesus. That they have rejected it utterly. And so in Revelation, the picture is that the Gentiles are trampling the work of Christ. And it's given to them to do for a certain time period. Those are amazing pictures. Okay, so, but we want to go back to the menorah uh, and the, the lampstand in the tabernacle lit by the lamps of the Holy Spirit. Now, remember, we talked about seven, right? So the seven is important. Seven lampstands, the menorah was built like this. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. But John saw a different picture. And we'll get to that in a minute. But I want you to, first of all, in your mind, make a distinction between the lamp itself and the lampstand. Okay? Because there is a distinct, there is a distinction made. There has to be. And, and if you go to John, it's it, it, Zechariah is asked by the angel, what is it that you see? And he saw a, a lampstand with a bowl above it full of oil. And the oil was pouring into the seven lamps. And in front of it were two olive trees, which, by the way, are the two witnesses later on in Revelation 11. What did the, and the angel asked uh, Zechariah, what do you see? And he told him, and he said, this is what that means. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So the lamp is the spirit. Okay? All right. So we also have, so we have a pastoral aspect. The other way that is, it's important for us to understand, and this, is, this, this does factor into understanding the churches, is that it is an epistle. Okay? 
Now, what is an epistle? It's a letter. But it's a letter to a church. What does Revelation say, right? To the seven churches. Revelation is patterned just after, almost identically with Paul's epistles. It has a very extended greeting. It's written specifically to churches. It gives encouragement at the beginning. It states a problem and addresses how to fix it. And then at the end, and it gives practical ways of, of, of addressing that situation. And then it closes with encouragement. So does Revelation. So it's, it, it's good for us to understand that this, is, this was an epistle written to churches. And the reason that I say this is because it makes it digestible. It makes it understandable. It's not some ethereal, apocalyptic science fiction show that we, we have to have a special uh, college degree to understand. When this was read to the churches, they got it. Because they knew this. They knew these things. And so it's an epistle, it's a pastoral epistle in nature. Now, G.K. Beale and several others really, really put a, a big emphasis on that. Smalley and some of the other commentaries that are out there kind of detract a little bit of that because they really want to hold into the idea that this is apocalyptic literature. And, and uh, I think that that does a little bit of damage to things. This is just my perspective. I like the idea that it's an epistle because it makes it readable. You have to understand that if you take all the chapters out... And read it. Anybody have that, what is that, that biblio thing where you just read it as a letter? Read Revelation in that book. Because it takes all the chapter and verses out. It just makes it as a letter. And when you read it that way, it's, it's, it flows. It's a very cool thing. So... Um, the letter to the churches in which instruction in godly living is given to the believers who receive it. That's what an epistle is. Uh, and we already talked about the fact that it, it, it mimics and it follows the same pattern as uh, Paul's uh, epistles. But it's not just chapters 1 through 3. The entire book is an epistle. The entire book. And this is where we have to... One of the things that I want you to walk out of this class this morning realizing that chapters 1 through 3 and 4 through 22 go together. There is a concurrent running together of the two. It is a letter to churches, so I wanted to, to stress that. And the reason that this is important is because, uh, because of the truths that are conveyed... Demonstrate that there's a heavenly battle and how believers are to respond to this battle, not in some undetermined date in the future, but in the here and now. So what John is saying is this is what's going on right now. This is how you deal with it right now. And this is the, the things that God is going to give you if you are able to overcome. All right? Now let's talk about the relation of the letters to the visions and the consummation. And I'm going to get kind of technical here. I'm going to go quick. Um, 
But I, I think Grace gave you guys notes, but I want to show you how the, the churches and the letters of the churches actually are tied into the rest of Revelation so that it actually starts to make sense to you. Most readers do not make any connection between these two. And as, as, as I've said, most seem to kind of hop over chapters 2 and 3 to get to the good stuff, right? I used to. So, however, there are several themes in the seven letters that recur in the visions. Now, what, what am I talking about visions? There are, if you, there are, there's a, there is a, uh, a disagreement among uh, commentators as to how many visions there are. Some of the older commentators say that there are seven visions. And they do that because they base it on chapter separation. Every one that I've seen that does a seven breakout or a seven vision breakout does so by chapters. However, those that do not use the chapters as a normal break come up with a total of eight. That's an important thing, and we'll talk about it here in a second. But there are seven specific visions throughout Revelation. And as we talked about earlier, they are concurrent. You can kind of overlay them, and I think Doug did a chart, and I think Grace had it and passed it out, and it shows the seven visions. He, he did like some, uh, I don't know, what do you call that, uh, that architectural software, what is it, huh? He, yeah, he like did an AutoCAD thing of the seven weeks. He forgot it, but we'll, we'll get it to you. So he took the time to lay out the seven visions across the top and how they overlap. And so, if we understand that all the visions overlap, this is the first vision. This is the first vision, and it's all, it's all said. And then I heard a voice that said, look, or I was in the spirit, or I was taken up, or I heard a voice behind me. Those all kind of mark the beginning of visions. And I particularly like the idea that there are eight of them, and eight is important, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Okay, so... This first vision, what we have to do is we have to understand that it is applicable and it is important to the rest of the visions following. And I'm going to draw parallels to it right now. There are several themes that recur in the letters that are found throughout the visions. There is what's called... We'll get back to this in a second. True... And false Israel. Okay? This is a theme. False Israel is referred to in the letters in 2.9 and 3.9, whereas the church, the true Israel, is described in the visions in 7, chapter 7. Okay? Slow me down if I go too fast. There's a theme of persecution and suffering that is, that is seen in the two. Uh, the believers at Smyrna will endure persecution, 2.10, as have those in the vision slain for their faith in 6.11. The believers at Philadelphia will receive spiritual protection on, during their trials in 3.10. They will be given the name of Christ and God written on them in 3.12, while believers in the visions are likewise spiritually sealed in 7.30, so that they will not be harmed by the trials 
and they will also have the name of their God in Christ written on them in 14.1. Okay? So during the apocalyptic visions, what is said of what the churches, if they endure, actually comes to pass. So you see a parallel. If you endure, you will have the name of my God and Christ written on you. And then we see in the vision that those who, who are sealed have the name of their God written on them. Okay? Um, the Philadelphia believers will become pillars in God's temple in 312. And the sealed believers will serve God in his temple in 715. Antipas at Pergamum is called God's witness in 2.13 as are believers in chapters 6.9 and the two witnesses in chapter 11. Okay? So there's a the theme of witness. There's a the theme of, of sealing. There's a the theme, theme of have, being marked for God uh, and marked for Christ. There's the idea of enduring persecution. And there's the demonstration and the picture of actually that happening later on in the visions. Satan is said to have a throne in Pergamum and has a false prophet called Balaam. The dragon in later chapters rules the nations through a beast and a false prophet. So the church at Pergamum was experiencing what John saw in chapter 12. Okay? Jezebel is seen in Thyatira, right? The spirit of Jezebel is seen where? Specifically, the prostitute, the great whore, later on, okay? Chapter 17. There's not, uh, no, there's seven visions. I'm just telling you the, the correlation between. Okay, so there's not specifically seven. No, no. I'm just giving you connection okay. points, okay? So that you can look for them when you go through and, and, and as you read. Uh, let's see. Uh, other promises. Believers at Laodicea are offered clean garments and invited to eat with the Lord. That's the Laodiceans. Chapter 3. And at the return of Christ, believers will be given clean garments and invited to the supper of the Lamb. So let's see, the connection is made. Uh, outside the door of the Laodicean believers stands Christ, called, called the faithful and true witness in 314. And inside the open door of heaven is found the one who is called the faithful and true in 1911. Here's a big one. Jesus tells the Pergamum church if they do not repent, he will come against them with the what? The sword of his mouth. And in 1915, Jesus comes on a horse judging the nations with what? The sword of his mouth. Okay? Because I'm drawing a parallel between the visions and the church. Yeah. No, 1915. I'm sorry. It's the chapter of Revelation. No, I was like, 1915. It was like. Well, I was not aware of that. Yeah. 
In chapters 19, verse 15, there is Jesus will judge the nation with the sword of his mouth. All right. Now, there's also strong connections between the description of the present state of the church in the letters and the description of the glorified church in the concluding sections, chapters 21 and 22. Okay? So again, we have parallels. There are deliberately, uh, they are deliberately linked by the theme of promise and fulfillment between the struggling or imperfect church now and the glorified church in the new creation. There are false apostles in, in the church during the seven, uh, the seven, during chapters two and three, but there are only true apostles in the church when Christ returns. There are false Jews in the church in 2.9 and 3.9, and there is only true Israel in the church in 21. 12. Believers dwell where Satan's throne is in 2.13. And in the new creation, they dwell in the very throne room of God. Some of the churches are dead in 3.1, whereas all in the consummated church are alive. Okay? Um, the church is currently an earthly lampstand illuminating Christ in 1.20 and 2.5. But God and the Lamb are the light of the church in the new creation. It's kind of cool, actually. I'm sorry. Yes, I'll say it one more time. So back to this idea that right now, the church is, illuminates Christ. The church, I'll say it the way I wrote it. The church is currently an earthly lampstand illuminating Christ in 120 and 25. But in 21, 23, 24, and 22, I'm sorry, 21 and 22, God and the Lamb are the light by which the church is illuminated. Okay? There's idolatry in the church now, but there's no idolatry in the, uh, in the church to come. Believers are persecuted here, but they reign in the consummated church. So the point of all of that is, is that there's a direct, direct connection between the churches and the language used for the churches and the visions and the same language that's used throughout the visions and the consummated vision of chapters 21 and 22. So the idea that, that John, and by the Holy Spirit's prompting, wrote and opened his epistle the apocalyptic epistle by addressing seven churches is very significant. Especially when you understand, and we'll get to it in a second, the word, the, the number seven is very key here, okay? Um, there's others, I won't get to them. There's the tree of life. If you eat from the tree of life and in the, in the, the new heaven and the new earth, they actually do eat from the tree of life. Um... There's a promise to be a part of the new Jerusalem. That's fulfilled later on. So there's a lot of that going on, and I think I've belabored that point quite well. Um, now, John writes his letter to the seven churches, and we go back to this again. The, the, the number seven 
is very significant. I think we've touched on this several times, but I want to do it again just because I want you guys to understand how important this is. Um, it signifies completion or fullness. And it seems to be originally derived from the seven weeks of create or the seven days of creation. Now, this is important. There, ha- there are seven days of creation, right? So what happened during those days? Six days, God worked, and then on the seventh, he rested, right? Now, there is a parallel in the work of Jesus Christ when he initiated the work of redemption, right? He worked six days, was crucified on the sixth, and he rested on the seventh in the tomb, which is the, the, the uh, which is Saturday. Okay. If you read Revelation, there are six visions. And on the sixth vision, on the seventh vision, there, there are six visions that, that deal with the earth. On the seven, there is judgment brought to everything, and the work is completed. Jesus rose on the first day of a new week, did he not? First, that's the creation, the new week of creation. The eighth vision in, in Revelation is the new creation. That's pretty cool. Yeah, there are six visions of God's judgment upon the earth. The seventh is the consummation of those visions, when everything is done away with, and the islands fled away, and the mountains were no more, and the, sea, and the heavens were burned up, and da-da-da-da-da, and you see those in little clips throughout. That's the seventh, when it's, uh, when it's consummated, right? Or the sixth, when, it, when it's all consummated, and the seventh... It, uh, I'm sorry, the seventh is when, I'm, let me say that again. There are six judgment visions. The seventh is the consummation of those judgments. And the eighth, which is chapters 21 and 22, is the dawning of the new creation. Okay? It starts the new creation week. And so it goes all the way back to Genesis. Okay? Did I run off and leave anybody in the dirt on that one? I thought that was pretty fascinating myself. Okay, so the week uh, seven. Seven is important. It, it has to do with completion and fullness. In Leviticus four six, there are seven. There is a sevenfold, sevenfold sprinkling of the blood for the atonement, which signifies complete atonement. In the service of ordination of the priesthood, there were se- uh, there were seven days. Israel marched around Jericho. How many times? Seven times. One of the most significant sevens in Scripture is seven times seven, or 49. How many of you guys understand Jubilee? Okay. What happens at Jubilee? Everything starts over. All right. How many visions are there in Revelation? There are actually eight, but let's take, there are seven. So we'll do seven, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven primary visions in Revelation. How many scenes are in each vision? Anybody know? Seven. 
Good. Good. Kath is. Seven visions with seven scenes. Seven times seven is 49. What is the eighth scene or the eighth vision? The new heaven and the new earth. The eighth vision is Jubilee. Now, that should just blow your mind. Okay? That should just blow your mind. The eighth vision is the jubilee. The eighth vision is the beginning of the new. All debts are canceled. Sin is no more. It's the eternal jubilee. Now, that should just make you go... Oh, my goodness. Okay. Yes, question. Do we have a mic? I don't know where it is. So in chapter uh, 13, it talks about the beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. Mm -hmm. What would the seven represent? Seven represents a, a fullness of government authority. And when we get to that chapter, we'll talk about that. So seven does that, that the seven heads represents the fullness of earthly authority. So the dragon holds complete earthly authority. All societies bow to him. So this is one of the things, and we'll jump ahead a little bit. This is one of the things that the old dispensationalists said, that there had to be a one-world government, remember? And that the Antichrist oversees it. That's not necessarily true. Because the seven heads represent simply that, that Lucifer, the serpent, oversees and has authority over the nations, irrespective of their governmental oversight. It's a common theme that runs throughout earthly government, and that is an anti-Christian theme. How many of you are seeing what's going on in the world right now? San Diego, shooting of Christians. What was that in India? Bombings, targeting specifically Christians. What's happening here? Remember we talk about buying and selling, and you won't be able to buy or sell unless you take the mark of the beast? What's happening to Chick-fil-A right now? They don't have the mark on them, so they're being excluded from airports, and they cannot buy and sell in the airports. So all of this stuff, this really unnatural concepts that we've applied to things as we've read Revelation, really are happening all around us right now. And we aren't paying attention because we keep looking for something like a computer chip that somebody's going to stick in the back of our hand, and that has nothing to do with it. Has nothing to do with it. But that ain't it. It's actually happening right now. Those who do not have the mark cannot buy and sell. Look at what's happening to Mark. Look at what's happening to Christian bakeries. They're being run out of business. Why? Because they do not carry the mark. What's the mark? Accept the world's idea that there is that it is okay to marry one of your 
the same sex. People are being kicked out of colleges now. And they're losing their job and their tenure as teachers because they do not subscribe to transgender concepts. They refuse the mark and they're not being allowed to buy and sell in the marketplace. That's happening right now. We're not waiting for a computer chip to get your, be put in your forehead. It is a, it is a signification of, of bowing to the society's demands. And there are people out there that are not doing it. And what's happening to them? They're being ostracized from the marketplace. And it's happening right now. We're in the last days. But it's okay, because we have the jubilee to look forward to. That's the purpose of Revelation, to give us hope and something to look forward to. Okay? We good there? Yes. Microphone. (laughs) So what did you say about Satan. So does he have dominion over all government authorities in the world? Is that what you were saying? Yes. The, that the, 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 he has dominion over the systems of the world. Yeah. yeah. And, and he basically said that to Jesus at, during, his, during the, the, his uh, testings in the wilderness. These are mine to give to whomever I want. Bow before me and they are yours. Did he not say that? Was he lying? No. Okay. So. Um, let me see. Where can I jump to to get this done with? <laughs> I have a lot. I don't do anything halfway. I do, yeah, that's true. That's okay. All right, so the seven churches then, the seven lampstands are the seven churches, and they represent the fullness of the church. Now, later on, what you're going to see is when he talks about the sealed, the 144,000, which, by the way, is just the number of perfection. It doesn't mean that there's going to be a a literal 144,000 Jewish people that are going to get saved in the end times. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with a completion and the fullness of the sealed of God, the elect of God. And they are sealed before the tribulations happen, by the way, if you read it. Which is very key because Paul tells us that we have been chosen from before the beginning. So the sealed of the elect, later on, I think it's chapter 9, of the 144,000 is done so before any of the visions. They are the sealed of God. They are 144. And if you go and look at the temple and the way that the temple is measured, it measures out to be 144,000 cubits. It is a square because it represents completion and fullness, wholeness. So the 144,000 later on, and I forgot totally where I was going with this. Uh, Oh, but the church, listen to this. The, the seven lampstands represent the entire church. And when we go to the visions where the, we talk about the, the, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and the 144,000 sealed, what is written 
on the bottom of or the, the foundations of the church. The names of the apostles, what 12 of them? What is written on the, on the gates, the 12 gates of the city? The 12 tribes of Judah. What is that a picture of? Old and New Testament church. This book is amazing. So when John sees the seven lampstands, that's what he's seeing. The church in its entirety. And the church is illuminated by this Holy Spirit to shine the light on Jesus Christ. That's that picture right there. Okay? Um, And it represents the entire church throughout the inner advent age from Christ's first coming, his death and resurrection, till his second coming. This is what John is seeing at the beginning. The entire church in its entirety. Yes, it's seven specific churches, but yes, it represents all of us. And every one of the problems that he addresses is problems that we have to confront and face. And some of them are pretty profound. And I'm just going to say this really quick just before we go on to worship. There are two churches that are in danger of having, now, not their fire extinguished because you can't put out the Holy Spirit. But what are they in danger of? Having the lampstand removed. Okay? Which two churches are those? Laodicea is one of them. Uh, no, the first one. Ephesus. Ephesus. It being taken out of the Lord's presence, no longer bearing witness. The church is no, that particular church is no more. It means that it's just taken out of his presence. Uh, there's not much given, and I haven't gotten to that point yet of, of really researching it. But it means that I will remove your lampstand. What does that mean? Well, in the natural, what happened is, is that a few years after John wrote his book, the church at Ephesus was destroyed. Yeah. So the church at Ephesus was gone several years after this was written because they didn't heed the warning. Okay, Two churches, Ephesus and Laodicea, uh, Laodicea, were the two churches that were in grave danger. What were the problems in those two churches? This is something that I want, that, that the Lord has been dealing with me about, and I think it's very important for us as a body. Two things that the Lord is dealing with. What is the first one in Ephesus? You have lost your first love. You are good theologically, you do not tolerate compromise, and you will judge every spirit that comes in. But you've lost your first love, and because you've lost your first love, you are in danger of having your lampstand removed. The second one is Laodicea. Laodicea, and it's the only one that says that you make me sick. Jesus said you make me sick. You nauseate me. Because you are apathetic. Because you are apathetic. I will vomit you. That's the word used. Vomit you out of my mouth. I will remove, and I think Rick said it right, I will remove your witness. Those are the only two churches that are in danger of losing their witness, and they are ones that have lost their first love and the other ones that are apathetic. The other ones were compromised, had Jezebel spirit, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, are... Jesus said, I'll come to the Jezebel spirit and the Nicolaitans. He said, I'll deal with those unless you do, if you don't. With the, 
the sword out of my mouth. I will pass judgment on them. It doesn't say anything about them losing their witness. Those are the only two churches. So in my life, the Lord has been poking on me about those two things. Where's your heart? Where's your love? Do you have any? In the last days, the love of most will grow cold. In the last days, the church will become an Ephesus church. And for those of you who've lost your first love, understand that the, the circumstances are grave. For those of us that have become apathetic, and just, just I'll say this real quick. When we celebrated Resurrection Sunday last week, at the church as a whole throughout America, does the idea of resurrection, does it, is it fantastic to you? I mean, does it actually boggle your mind? Did you sit down and contemplate what does that mean that Jesus rose again? Can you imagine the looks on the disciples' face when Jesus showed up in the room? Hi. It's me. Do we even think that? Is our love, is our exuberance, are we, are we filled with awe over who God is and what he has done, or are we apathetic to it? And do we just go, oh, yeah. Of course he did. So these are the two things that the Lord has been, I'll tell you what, if you start digging around in the churches and you start studying the Lord will start putting his finger on things in your lives. And it's good because the Scripture says that I discipline those I love. And that's what Jesus is doing as a good shepherd tending the lampstands. That's the picture. It's pastoral. He's not saying, do this or I'm going to cut you off. He's saying, please repent. Remember at Laodicea, the picture is that Jesus is knocking on the door of the church that makes him sick. The picture is actually that he's leaning on the door. That's the word that's used. He's actually leaning on the door with his face up against it, calling out, it's me. Come open the door. Come open the door. That's the picture. So even in those grave conditions, the Lord is pastoral, is restorative. He wants the church to be a bride. We'll talk about mystery next week and why that's so important. Okay, I got to be done. So... Father, we're grateful. Quicken our hearts this morning. Enliven us once again to the, the absolute fantastic nature of who your son is, of what the incarnation is, of what resurrection is, that God would die for me. And may that spark our celebration this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.